Well, we are continuing our series, like Jesse said, on the church that's called Built on a Rock. There's a couple of reasons why we'll want to do this series, and one of them is that there's a lot of confusion about what the church is, what is the role of the church in the life of believers and, you know, new people and all that kind of stuff. So we want to clarify some of that. A second reason why we want to do, why we want to do this series on the church is that a lot of us look at the world around us and we see it kind of going crazy. And some of us can kind of wring our hands over it a little bit. And I can tell you as a parent who's raising kids up in this culture, in this generation, who are going to be here for a long time, uh, I want to know that there's a plan. <laughs> and when we talk about the church, part of what we want to establish here this morning and going on in this series is this. Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it brothers and sisters we have a hope we have hope that jesus is going to build his church and no matter how we vote in november no matter how we vote 20 novembers from now jesus will be building his church and we want to fill west side with that kind of resolve that looks to Jesus and says, Jesus, I trust you more than I trust the waves around me right now. So that's why we're doing this series. Um, today we're talking about the church as the people of God. Uh, and, and just to clarify that a little bit, I think a lot of us understand this. But just to say it out loud, when you came here into this building this morning, you didn't come to church. You didn't come into the building like this is the church. The church is not the building. You also didn't come to the 1030 thing. The thing that starts at 1030 is the church. No, no, no. The church is not a service. The church is the people. And what we're going to see this morning is that the church is the people of God that have been united by Jesus. What sin has divided, Jesus has united. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, I want you to take a quick look at this. How many here ever had a record player? Please raise your hands. Yes. So way back in the day, before streaming services, before Spotify and Apple Music, before CDs, right, before cassette tapes, and right now you're thinking, gosh, how old is this guy? All the way back there, there were these things called records, and artists would record records. Music came on records, and what they would record a whole album of music, and in order to sell that, to promote that, they would release these little singles, and the singles had what the producer would think is the best song on the album, and this is the one that's going to be the hit song from the album, so they would release that, but if you know anything about records, you know that they have two sides, so these singles came with the A-side, the single, and they came with, anybody know what it's called? The B-side, yeah. They came with the B-side. Now, initially, the B-side was sometimes just like a filler song, but pretty quickly, artists wanted to start getting their best music out in front of the the audience, and so they wouldn't just put some filler song on there. In fact, oftentimes, they put what the artist thought was the best song on that B-side. In fact, on this one, I know you can't quite see it, but this is a this is a famous Beatles single that actually had an almost more famous B-side to it. Now, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because what we're talking about this morning is the gospel B-side. So, 
you know, the hit single that ev- that most everybody here probably knows that we talk about a lot. It gets a lot of radio airplay and it should because it's an awesome single. And that's this, that God made us to have a relationship with him. He made us to have fellowship with him. But w- instead of enjoying that fellowship with God, we said, no, thanks. We made our spiritual declaration of independence from this God. We said, you will not rule over me. You won't tell me what to do. I'm going to go my own way. I am mine. Yikes. Well, the message of the New Testament is not that sin makes you bad. It's that sin makes you dead. And so while we were dead in our sins, hopeless, without God in the world, the gospel is, and that A-side, is that God sent his son, who, who was God in human flesh, who took on the law, who lived it and completed it perfectly. And he obeyed everywhere where we disobeyed. And he took the penalty for our sin, that death that was due us. Jesus himself took that on himself. And he was buried and he rose again on the third day. That's the gospel. That's the gospel A-side. The gospel B-side is this. That when we are saved, we're saved into a family. We are saved into the church. We become united we become united with Jesus, and we become united with one another. Now, the, the illustration kind of breaks down because B-side sounds like it's a little bit worse, and I don't want to make it sound like it's a little bit worse. It's just all part of the same package. See, you couldn't get the single without the B-side. You get the single and the B-side. They come together. In the same way, you don't become a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, without becoming part of his church. The church is the people. And so what we're going to look at this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. And I would love it if you would uh, turn there with me. As we're looking at that, this is the big idea that we are going to see over and over again in the text today. That Jesus unites what sin has divided. Jesus unites what sin has divided. Our sin separates us from God and our sin separates us from one another. But Jesus unites what sin has divided. Let's look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, in verse, uh, starting in verse 11 here. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by, or sorry, called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Don't worry, I'll explain that in a second. Uh, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul starts in this passage here. He's writing to the Ephesian church. And what we want to see is we want to see what kind of issue is Paul addressing. And there's a really big one. There's a whopper of an issue here. And that is that there are Jews and Gentiles in the same church. And to us today, we're like, What? Like we have Indian people, Hispanic people, white people. We've got all kinds of people in the church. How is this hard? Right? What we need to understand is we need to understand the hostility that existed between these two groups for thousands of years. And in order to help explain that, I'm calling on uh, the old reliable Dr. Seuss. 
Dr. Seuss wrote this story called The Sneetches, and I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but it's these little yellow goose-like creatures uh, who kind of live in this little community. And some of the Sneetches are born with a star on their belly, and some of the Sneetches are born with no star on their belly. Now, the thing is about the Sneetches is as they're kind of hanging out and, and doing life, the Sneetches with the stars on their belly, called the star-bellied Sneetches, they think that they're so much better than everybody else. And so they just kind of stick their noses down at the non-star-bellied Sneetches, so they don't invite them to their parties. They kind of become quite exclusive. And these non-star-bellied Sneetches over here, they're like, man, I wish I could be a star-bellied Sneetch. Like, we're, they're just looking all sad, in, you know, in the, in the great graphics by Dr. Seuss. Well, an enterprising creature uh, called Sylvester McMonkey McBean comes along and he's got this great idea for the non-star-bellied Sneetches. He says this, hey, you guys want to be like the star-bellied Sneetches, don't you? And they go, yes, we do. And he said, if you'll give me three bucks, you can go through my star-on machine. And they're like, really? Is this too good to be true? So they pay their three bucks, they go through the star-on machine, and something amazing happens. These non-star-bellied Sneetches go through the machine, they come out, and they've got a star, just like the OG star-bellied Sneetches. And what they say is this. They say, look, we're just like you. There's no difference between me and you. The newly star-bellied Sneetches are really excited about this. As you can imagine, the OG non-star-bellied Sneetches are not so excited about this. Is this, I don't know if this is helping at all or not. I love this story. Um, and here's what, you'll have to read the rest of the book to understand how that ends. Uh, but, but that's, that's what we want to say. So th- this is why this is relevant. See, way back, way before the Ephesian church came in, way back, God made promises to, out of all the nations, He made promises to one man named Abraham, way back in time. And he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a huge family. And out of your family, every nation of the earth will be blessed. And so fast forward, Abraham's family grows. Uh, He has a grandson named Jacob, whose name gets changed to Israel, right? That's where we get the term the Israelites. Israel has many sons. They grow. God gives them their the law. He shows them, this is how you relate rightly to me. So out of all the nations on the earth that, that were worshiping these false gods, doing these terrible, detestable things, God is showing Abraham's family the way to live, the way to worship, the way to be in right relationship with God. That comes with some sacrifices. It comes with some, like, things that we think are just kind of weird, like don't wear clothes of mixed fabrics and don't eat shellfish. Like, but those things were written and given to the Israelite people to make them different from the world around them. And so they go through their whole lives for thousands of years living in this different way, and they've been given the, um, the, the law, and way back, even before the law was given, there were promises made of one who would come and deal finally and fully with their sin. This Messiah, he was called, or in Greek it's called Christos, where we get the name Christ. 
This Christ would come and he would bear their sin. He would be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, of course, some of the Jews reject him, but many of the Jews believe and the church is formed. And it's all these people who have been looking forward to this Messiah for all their lives. Whoa, what a great thing. But then as the church starts to kind of grow, all of a sudden these Gentile people, and Gentile just means non-Jewish. So it's like the Jewish people and everybody else. So the Gentiles start believing and they're like, hey, we, we have stars on our bellies just like you. And these star-bellied sneeches all of a sudden are like, uh, I'm sorry, you're not just like me. You know, I've lived this way for my whole life. And now all of a sudden you think that just because you've got this faith in Jesus, just faith, you think that that makes you just like me. Can you imagine that if we had that in our church today? Oftentimes we actually don't have to imagine quite so hard. See, the thing is about the scriptures is sometimes the subject changes a little bit, but oftentimes the message is relevant in every time, in every culture. So Paul reminds the Ephesian Gentiles, remember where you came from. He said, remember that uh, in that time you were called the uncircumcision. And, and uh, I actually am just going to skip that part. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Going on here. Uh, but now. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one. What does he mean by he made us both one? Well, Jewish people and Gentile people. He put us in the same church. He has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That dividing wall of hostility. This is such a cool picture, I think. In the temple uh, in Jerusalem where the Israelites would go to worship and offer their sacrifices, there was a place where uh, Jewish people could all go. There was, a, there was a gate where some Jews could go beyond this part and, and some couldn't go beyond that part. But outside of all of that was this place called the court of the Gentiles, and there was a wall to distinguish where the Gentiles could go to observe worship of God and where the Jewish people could go to actually worship God. And this wall had a sign on it, and that sign said, no Gentiles beyond this point. Enter at your own risk. And what Paul is saying here about what Jesus has done is that Jesus demolished that wall. He took that dividing wall down. So it's not saying, Gentiles, you can only come so close to God. He's saying you can come right up in. And how did he do that? I love this. It says that he did it by abolishing uh, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's a weird phraseology, but I want us to think of it like this. That Jesus came and he fulfilled the law so that that law had no more purpose anymore. 
It's, it's like it's completely fulfilled. So why would they try to keep living under that law? And that's a little bit hard for us to understand. So I was thinking of it like this uh, yesterday. So my son Matthew, is, is uh, he's a driver. He's 17. Uh, a while back, he got his permit. Uh, and so when he got his permit, he was learning to drive. He had to have an adult with him all the time in the car. He, he's driving along and he's doing fine. But he gets to the point where he's like, okay, I'm ready to pass my test. Then he takes the test and he passes the test. Yay! And, uh, and now he's a driver. So what does he do with his permit? He's got a driver's license. What does he do with the permit? See, the purpose of the permit is to prepare you for the license. And now that he's got a license, the, the permit's been fulfilled, right? That's, that's what he's talking about. This is how he uh, abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. But I want us to focus in here for the last couple minutes about this one word that it says here in the ESV. The, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that. That. What does the word that communicate? Purpose. This is why he did this. He did this that he might create in himself one new Man. And that word for man there is not the word for like male. It's the word for humanity, anthropos. And so he did this in order that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Which two? Jew and Gentile or any other two that you can come up with. He made them one. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. Those who are far off have been brought near, and we are one of the purpose statements of that cross of Jesus Christ was to make us one body. Y'all, this is the gospel B-side. We don't, it doesn't get as much radio play as that hit single, the gospel A-side. But you can't have the gospel A-side without the B-side. And I think the truth is here really that these are both good news. It's good news that we are saved into a family in a world that is shrinking into itself, into hyper-individualism. Jesus is forging a community of people to lean in together to be his people. That's what the church is. Welcome to church. That's what we are here. That's, that's why we are here. Now we could just stop there. Some of you might be glad, but we're, we could just stop there and say, okay, so that's it. Nice lesson. I learned something today. But I want to just say this. If we just hear what the Bible says, like for a teaching, that's nice. But I think that what we need is more than just hearing something or just learning something. Jesus wants to transform us through the power of his word. So if one of the missions or one of the purposes that Jesus gave his life for is to make us one, we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing? How are we doing with this West Side? Now, there's things that we could talk about. We could talk about out there problems. We could talk about how some other people are totally missing it. We could talk about the church down the road or this church that I know in 
Tennessee or whatever, that they're just really missing it. But I think what the Holy Spirit would lead us to do this morning is to take the last few minutes here and say, God, what do you, what do you want for me in this? Not for somebody else. What do you want for us here? The question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we divide what Jesus has united? Um, on our eighth anniversary, Amy and I thought it would be a brilliant idea to jump in, to go rent a canoe on the Willamette River and to go uh, paddle out to a little island. So we rent the canoe, we jump in, Amy's going to steer, I'm going to be the motor for it. And, uh, and we start going out and boy, you know, you get in a little canoe on the river and it's a, it's a little more, you know, uh, I'm not a real river guy, but we, we get in, we start putting out and I had never noticed before how many speedboats there are on the Willamette in the summertime. And there are so many speedboats. And so we're going out and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we're going to get hit by one of these speedboats, which look giant, by the way, when you're in a little tiny canoe. So we're going, we're paddling out. And as the speedboats go by, you know what comes with the speedboats? wake and so the wake is coming and i'm like amy amy we need to be perpendicular into the wake we need to be perpendicular into it and she's steering i'm like amy 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 don't you care and 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 we just kind of like start almost rolling over and we're fine i'm like okay the next one we got to get better and i am well you can tell i'm kind of freaking out um i'm i'm just freaking out and like if we can survive the wake can we survive the speedboats so, oh my gosh, so we get out there, I'm freaking out, uh, and then finally I look up river, and there is this monstrous ship coming, and this thing is coming, I swear, right for us, and I'm thinking, we are going to be run underneath that propeller, and, because like, you know, big boats, they don't have brakes, they can't just be like, whoa, whoa, you know, like, they're just going to keep moving and cruising right over us, so I'm freaking out, and at some point, I'm like, Amy, you need to go to the left, no, no, no to the right, and, and I finally, I was like, I set down my paddle. I was like, you know what? I'm done. I am not going to paddle anymore if you're going to do it like this. <laughs> and this thing that was supposed to be this, like, wonderful time of our unity. I mean, we are literally in the same boat. <laughs> and I'm freaking out. Now, in the moment, those waves and the speedboats and all that, look, we survived, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> In the moment, those speedboats and all the stuff, it looked really, really scary. It didn't take long for me to realize afterward how silly that was to be freaking out so much. Um, but our unity as a married couple, it must be preserved. We've got to watch out for those kinds of things. I had a lot of repenting to do on that eighth anniversary. Uh, not exactly how I expected this to spend it. Um, I, I brought a couple of object lessons. I hope it's okay. Um, I want to talk about a couple of different kinds of threats to our unity. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so there's, I, I see broadly there's two kinds of threats to our unity. Some of them are really big and obvious. This sledgehammer, if we were going to, if we we're trying to cut up a rock, a sledgehammer is a pretty loud you know, big way to, to do destruction, right? And the thing is about a sledgehammer is it, it's like it's heavy enough so that when you swing it, it's like it takes some muscle. You got to really put into it. You got to swing it hard to break stuff up. I mean, it's a big deal. Now, there are sledgehammer issues 
in the church that can divide us. There are things like, I mean, big deals, like really bad theology coming in. That's a sledgehammer issue. Uh, things like, you know, uh, you know, one of the leaders here has an affair or something crazy and all this stuff starts to break up. That's a sledgehammer issue. But the thing is, the sledgehammer can take so much of our attention that we think that maybe that's the only threat. And I'd like to propose this morning that the more subtle threat is this. This is a chisel. A chisel doesn't take a lot of power to break through a rock. In fact, it's not big swings at all. It's not really that loud. It's just little taps in the same place over and over and over again. And the sledgehammer can take away, uh, can, can do a lot of damage for sure. And I don't want to undervalue that. But there are some chisel issues that I believe that just go so far under the radar that we just don't even think they're important. And Westside, these are threats to our unity. These are the ways that, G, that we divide what Jesus has unified. So the, the three of these that I want to talk about. Oh, yeah, and, and this, is, this is so crucial here. One of our core values is that we are relationally growing as a church body. We want to be relationally growing in a culture that is shrinking and becoming more and more hyper-individualized. We want to be relationally growing with one another. So these three threats to our unity are this. The first one is mishandling sin. And I've asked Michael to read this passage. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Thank you. We live in a culture of canceling. We live in a culture that says, if you do wrong to me, what I'm going to do is I'm just trying to remove all toxic people from my life. Have you heard that phrase before? I've heard it so much. And, you know, I I don't expect a whole lot different from the people who don't know Jesus. But the crazy thing is, is a lot of us do the same thing. When somebody sins against us, we've got two choices. We can either do what the world says Or we can trust Jesus and take him at his word. See, Jesus gave us a plan. This is how you do it. This is what you do. Somebody sins against you. He's not saying like, I mean, on the offhand chance that somebody sins against you. Because I tell you what, we were on our eighth anniversary in a little canoe. Yay, yay. And then we're freaking out where I'm sinning. (laughs) It's going to happen. We're in the same boat together. It's going to happen. So what do we do? Jesus made it really clear. If your brother sins against you, you go and you tell them about the sin. You don't go looking to get something from that brother or sister. You're not trying to take something from them. You go there having already forgiven them in your heart. And you say, man, it, it seemed like like what you did, that seemed like that was just not right. And it kind of breaks my heart, but I want to be reconciled with you. So rather than mishandling it and telling everybody else about it, what Jesus says to do is that we go and seek reconciliation. If that person doesn't listen, 
then you maybe you go and bring a couple of friends who also know that person who says, man, we've seen this in you too. We love you too much to let this separate us. But if you let this continue to separate us, it will. And so if he doesn't listen to even them, then you tell it to the church. And it's not so that the whole church can stand against and opposed to the person. It's so that the whole church can plead with that person to be reconciled. Let us not divide what Jesus has united. The heart that seeks reconciliation is the heart that recognizes the amazing grace of Jesus in our lives. And it's exactly what Ken actually read this morning. That Jesus loves us so much that he, in his perfection, he sees us in all of our mess. He sees more of our mess than we even realize. And he comes and he wants to be reconciled to us. So how can we who are living down here on this level withhold that from someone else? We've been given grace freely. How can we withhold that from our brother or our sister? But too often, and I've seen it so much sadly... Somebody sins against someone else, and you know what? It's just easiest for me to just back away. I'm trying to remove toxic people from my life. I'm not trying to be a problem. And that's none of my business anyway, really. Y'all, the gospel B-side would say that Jesus gave his life for our unity. So let us not divide what Jesus has united Of course, how we say it matters. Of course, we want to leave room for the Holy Spirit to convict. Um, I, I want to share a, a story. I was actually right here, I think, uh, several years back. And um, uh, I had a brother and sister who came up and who said, man, we got to share something with you, Dan. You know, you, you, you did this thing and gosh, that just seems like it was not right. Uh, they had to confront me in my sin. And initially, uh, I was pretty defensive. I was like, oh, I think you're misunderstanding what I said. Um, you know, I, I, I think that maybe this, and I'm trying to push it off initially, but very gently, very humbly, they persisted and said, yeah, but I think this is a problem. And you know, they left room for the Holy Spirit to work in me. And you know what happened? I got convicted. I said, man... I think you're right. I, I, I didn't mean for that to happen, but I think that that does show a sinful thing in my heart, and I'm sorry. Let me tell you what happened with that brother and sister. I knew them most of my life. But what happened is they became closer to me than ever. We serve together now, very closely. They're at my house regularly. And we are serving Jesus together. That, my sin, that could have divided us because of the way that that godly couple handled that, that actually became a source of unity for us. Um, the next subtle threat to our unity is slander, gossip, and criticism. I've asked Rebecca to read Ephesians four twenty nine to 32. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as it's good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Yeah. This is when our words are used to lower somebody else's view of another. Slander, gossip, critical spirit. And this, sadly, makes its way under the radar all the time. But I'm telling you, this is one of Satan's most often used chisels in a church. Slander, gossip, and a critical spirit. Uh, this is basically when you confess somebody else's sin to somebody else. Slander uh, is something that the Lord hates. Proverbs 6 says it this way. It says uh, that the Lord hates, one of the seven abominations that the Lord hates, is one who sows discord among brothers. Sowing discord. So I think of it like this. I think of somebody with a bunch of seeds in their hand, and they go along and they say, you know, that person thinks that they're something great, but they're really not. Bury that. You know, this person said this, and I don't think that's entirely true. Did you know that this brother listens to this kind of music? So that. Y'all, that happens all the time. And the Lord says he hates it. That has no place in the church. One of Westside's core values is that we are love-saturated. Rather than being critical of one another, that we are love-saturated. First Peter 4.8 says that love covers a multitude of sins. So rather than confessing somebody else's sin to somebody else, we should be covering that. Lab, you know, I'm, I'm just really not going to talk about that. I'm not going to make a big deal out of that. You know, the, all these little things. Now, I just want to clarify here, when we're talking about this, we're not talking about somebody who's being abused. Somebody who's at risk. That's not a chisel issue. That's a sledgehammer issue. And there are times when those things need to be dealt with. There's legal things that have to happen. And I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the big sledgehammer things. I'm talking about the little things that just over time drive a wedge and divide what Jesus has united. And if you're like me, you probably are thinking right now of about five other people in this church that really need to hear this. I would encourage us to do this rather. Is to, like Jesus said, before you go and help your brother with the speck in his eye, maybe take the plank out of your own eye first. And, and yes, I believe that we should be intolerant to hearing this kind of speech from one another. But you know what? This problem would be solved if all of us would truly believe in that gospel B-side and say, you know what? Jesus gave his life for unity, so I am not going to try to divide what Jesus has united. Uh, and the third, and this is where we'll close, is unforgiveness that leads to bitterness. Hebrews twelve fourteen to 15 says this.
Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This root of bitterness that the author of Hebrews is talking about, this is a major problem, but it starts with a very simple thing and a very common thing. It starts with unforgiveness. Unforgiveness leads to a root of bitterness. How common is unforgiveness? It's all over the place. It's all over the place out there, but what about in here? What about in your heart? What about in my heart? Unforgiveness is like a slow leak in a roof that over time creates just a major problem. And it's just a very slow leak and a little bit of water, but over a long period of time can absolutely collapse a roof and destroy a house. But, you know, when the snow was coming and the ice was coming and the wind was coming just a couple of weeks ago, that destroyed some houses and that got a lot of attention. But you know what can be just as destructive is that little trickle of unforgiveness that stays unforgiven for so long that it becomes toxic. It steals your joy. It makes you easy to offend. And that bitterness will consume you. That's the thing is it's described as a root. I spend a lot of time in my nine to five thinking about roots. And one of the things about roots is you can't see them. So you might have a root of bitterness in you that you don't really see. But brothers and sisters, we've got to have people in our lives who can point that out to us and say, man, I hear you coming out with some really harsh criticism about that brother or sister. Like, maybe you need to confess this unforgiveness. It's the natural inclination of our heart. To seek vengeance rather than to forgive. But when we remember the glorious good news of what Jesus has done for us, how could we withhold that forgiveness from anyone else? Jesus who is, who has forgiven miles of debt. How can we not give a millimeter? Maybe right now the Lord's showing you some bitterness. An unforgiveness that you've harbored in your heart. And maybe as soon as it comes up, you don't even need somebody to point it out to you. Maybe you already know what this is. I would love to encourage you, don't shrug this off. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Um, this last passage uh, um, really says it all, I believe. And I would love it if we could stand up and read this together. Uh, We'll be reading it just right here from off the screen. This passage says really everything. I guess I could have just read this right at the beginning and then just we could go home and eat lunch. So sorry. Uh, But it says this. It says, let's let's read it together. Okay. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. I want everybody to say those last three words with me again. In one body. Yeah. Our attitudes toward one another reflect what we most deeply believe about the gospel. Our local church, our congregation, not our building, not our services, we are a demonstration to the world of the gospel that we believe in. Do you think it would stand out to the world if we were slow to anger, if we were quick to forgive, if we were willing to have someone point out something in our lives that is displeasing to the Lord and we were willing to go have that hard conversation with that brother or sister, do you think that would stand out in the world? I believe it would. Jesus believed it would too. Because this is what he said. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Lord, we thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us hope for now and for eternity. But we also thank you for that B side of the gospel that you have saved us into a family. That you saved us into a church. Lord, thank you for uniting what sin has divided. Help us as your people to never divide what you have united. Help us, Lord, to be your church, to be one, to have love for one another, and show and so prove that we are your disciples. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.